Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the day. That's an inspirational sentiment. And in the Greek New Testament, the New Testament is written originally in this language of Greek. In the Greek, there's this sentiment of kairos, which is similar. It's this idea of a divine moment, an opportune moment, this moment that is weighed down with significance. In the Greek language, there are two words for time. One is chronos, and it means like just kind of our normal understanding of ordinary time. One moment that comes after the next moment that comes after the next. It's time moving on and passing by. But kairos is this idea of an opportune moment, of this moment that's weighed down with significance, a fragment of time, and yet somehow it holds eternal possibilities and potential in it. This thought of carpe diem, it can be inspiring to us because we think of it with carpe diem. It's like seize the day because the day is fleeting. Time is fleeting. This moment is fleeting and passing. But carpe kairos has a different sentiment to it. It's not just seize the moment because it's fleeting, but seize the moment because it's eternal. There's so much possibility in the moment that we're in seize the moment because it's eternal weighed down with significance in this series that we're starting today we're going to be walking through the book of Ephesians it's an incredible book and there's this theme that runs all the way through it Paul the apostle Paul one of the great theologians and missionaries of the church writes this to the church in Ephesus a church that he helped plant and helped get started and he writes this to them And his message to them repeatedly, he says to them, this idea of carpe cairo, seize this divine moment that you're in. This time matters. There's eternal significance to it. So he says things like, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. He goes on to say that live live your life not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil, he says. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Sometimes we're overwhelmed with what's happening around us and we get the sense that the days are evil, like things are twisted. Things seem to be crumbling and falling apart. Yet in the midst of that, the believers in Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus stands up. And says there is an opportunity here for the light to shine in the darkness. Yes, the darkness seems thick as we look all around us. News from all over the world makes us feel like we're shrouded in darkness. But we remember those words. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. The light of Christ will shine on you and will shine through you in this opportune moment. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not and cannot overcome it. Let the light shine in the darkness. Paul is writing this to this church and to encourage this church and to build them up and to say, wake up, rise up, seize the moment that you're in, see the opportunity of this moment. I'm going to start by reading from the first chapter of Ephesians. And right off the bat, we're going to see the weight and the beauty 
of this little letter, this letter that's sent to a church, yet it's so timeless speaking to us and what it has to say. This book it is many Christian leaders throughout history have said that this is their favorite book in the entire Bible, not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible because of the beautiful and powerful way in which it captures the mystery of the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he moves from this introduction into this this first statement that he's making to these people. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just Just let this be prayed over you, all right? Let this sink into you. Sit in this. It's a long passage we're about to read, but you can handle that. All right? You can handle it. We can binge watch our favorite seasons of shows on Netflix, man. We can sit under this for a minute. So just let it hit you. Let it be prayed over you. Absorb and take in what Paul says to that church and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in this church. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. All things brought together, reconciled together through Christ. In him We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. It's beautiful. It's powerful. This is such beautiful and powerful language. Now, there's a phrase in there. I'm only going to hit on this for one moment here. There's, there's this word predestined. And don't get tripped up over that word when you're reading through this passage, okay? In this room and across the spectrum of Orthodox Christianity, people who are faithful and true in their belief in Scripture and their faith in Jesus Christ, across the spectrum of the church, people have different understandings of what that word means and different interpretations of that word. 
But across the spectrum, we all understand and we all know clearly that it's through Jesus that we are saved. It's Jesus's work that accomplishes salvation. It's not anything that you do to earn it. You get that? It's not anything that you do to earn it. It's through Jesus Christ. It's his work and he's the one that accomplishes it and makes it a reality for us. So don't get caught up on that. Just understand that that's the bedrock of it and the bedrock truth of it. But this passage is so beautiful in the way that he captures the mystery of the grace of Jesus Christ, the glorious riches that God lavishes on us, he said. So beautiful. Now you heard how long that was and like how the language just piled up on each other. One thing that we don't get when we're just reading this in our English Bibles, we've got the nice punctuation marks, like we've got commas in the right places, we've got periods, like to separate it out and make it something that we can get our minds around. Even in this, it's like, man, I've got to just move through this so slowly in order to soak this in. But in the original language in which it's written, Verses 3, where we started there at the beginning, through 14, where we just ended. Verses 3 through 14, that's all one sentence in Paul's original letter. That is all one sentence. Use some punctuation, man. Break it up for us, right? But you get this sense that Paul is just stacking language on each other, word after word on top of each other. He's grasping for any word that he can use to make this clear and to get his point across. And he's exhausting the vocabulary that is available to him. And finally, he just gives up. Let's end it right there, all right? But it's just stacked on top of each other. The weight, the beauty, the power, the mystery of the grace that God pours out on us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's a masterpiece. This whole letter is a masterpiece of soaring theology matched with practical implications for what that actually means for our everyday lives. No wonder this is a favorite for so many people and why so many people keep coming back to this. So we're going to be studying this book together. That, that intro just gives you a glimpse of what it is we're about to be diving into together over these next few weeks. But one thing that we want to do today that's really important when we're studying Scripture is to understand that the content that we're getting here, the content of this book, can't be removed from the context of the book. Okay, the content, in order to really fully understand it, we've got to match it together with the context in which it was written and who's doing the writing of when, of how this is all taking place. So one of the things that we need to understand right off the bat is that the author of this book is the Apostle Paul and that this is someone who doesn't just speak about the beauty of grace, but this is someone whose life has been wrecked by the beauty of grace. He's been completely transformed. When the story of Paul begins, when we first meet him, he is in violent opposition to the church of Jesus. The first time we meet him, he's putting the first Christian martyr to death. He's overseeing that and giving his approval to the death of the first Christian martyr. And then he sparks this violent persecution, breaking out against the church where he's seeking the Christians, throwing them in prison and worse. And yet he is radically transformed by the grace of Jesus that grabs a hold of his life 
completely changes him. He's overcome by that. He understands that even though he spent his life building up this merit, he spent his life building up this resume that he thinks is going to lead to his own redemption, he comes in contact with the once dead, now very much alive, Jesus Christ, and it completely changes him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He becomes a new person. Instead of being the most violent oppressor of the church, he becomes the church's greatest missionary in the history of Christianity. And he begins to take Christianity into new places, planting new churches everywhere he goes with this transforming gospel of grace. This is a person whose theology is played out in his biography. This is not merely a theology textbook, but we're getting biography coming through here. A person who's really experienced this himself. And he's been changed by it. That's one of the things we need to know. Another part about this is as we read this soaring theology of this book in this poetic language, it's tempting to like imagine Paul sitting in his study, right? Surrounded by all of these books, like really nice bound books. Okay, he's probably sitting in a leather chair and he's probably smoking a pipe. All right. That's just how I think of it. All right. That's my dream life right there. Okay. But that's not what's happening with Paul as he's writing this letter. He's not in his writing cabin up in the mountains, like looking over the valley, right? That's not where he is. He's not on the beach at sunrise. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison cell. All of this soaring theology, this beautiful language and truth, is coming from a Roman prison cell. His life Hanging in the balance. He knows what has happened to other Christians before him. He knows what has happened to Jesus himself. He sees that on, on that same fate coming towards him as well. And yet in the midst of that, he writes this powerful letter, this beautiful letter to the church to encourage and to build up the church. So as you're reading this, don't think of it like Henry David Thoreau's like Walden, okay, that he's like by the pond and in the woods and this like transcendent experience with nature. That's not what's happening. Instead, think of it more in terms of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. That's what we're talking about here. There's a there's a quote from that letter that we all quote all the time. The letter from the Birmingham jail. If you haven't read that before, Google it now and feel free to read that through the rest of the sermon. All right. It's powerful. And it's one preacher from behind prison bars writing to other religious leaders and clergy members and challenging them in their stance for justice. There's a quote from there. We love to quote this. We love to post it on Instagram and whatever else with these stirring images And it's this quote of injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's powerful. It's catchy. But it's more than catchy. Don't just take the content. Look at it in its context. This is a man who's writing this from behind prison bars when he says that. He's experiencing the weight of injustice. And he's saying that in a convicting and provoking way to white clergy members who refused to take a stand for justice and instead said, just be slow about it. Let the slow crawl of justice progress how it's going to progress. And eventually everything will work itself out. Meanwhile, King is behind bars taking a stand for it. 
and saying injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Don't remove the content from its context. You've got to understand it completely. So that's what's happening. So the context into which Paul is writing this letter, that's who, who's doing the writing. But the context, context in which he's writing is important as well. So the book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus, obviously, which is a major urban city in the Roman Empire. It's one of the leading cities. So when you, in that day and time, when you thought about the glory and the power of the Roman Empire, this is one of the first things that comes to your mind is the city of Ephesus. It'd be like thinking about, if you're thinking about America, then you're going to start thinking about New York City or L.A. or Boston or San Francisco or D.C. or something like that. Say what? San, all right. Somebody said Fuquay Verena. No, okay. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about here. One of the most prominent, influential cities in the entire Roman Empire that he's writing to. It's a, it's a hub of business and of innovation, all right? There's a, there's a harbor there. There's a highway system, all of which plays into uh, being an important place on the trade route. So it's this economic powerhouse that he's writing to where this church has been started. Beyond that, it's also a religious hub, okay? They were most known for their worship of the goddess Artemis, sometimes known as the goddess Diana. I think we've got an image. No, wait, not that <laughs> Other, other Diana. All right, there we go. Awesome. All right. So this is the goddess Diana or Artemis. And in this city of Ephesus, there is a massive temple that is built in her honor. And this is what it would have looked like. This temple of Artemis. It's the pride and joy of this city. 127 columns. Those columns are 60 feet tall. It's this masterpiece. And they're so proud of it in this this temple to Artemis. The, the thing about Artemis is she's this goddess of fertility and not just biologically for them, but they believe prosperity and multiplied prosperity in every way, that that's what she would bring to them. And as they look around, they see it happening. They're thriving in every possible way. They're rich in every way that you might think of. This temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Right here in the city of Ephesus. That's the context into which Paul is writing this letter. It's also a hub of culture. There were athletic contests that were held there. It was a major part of the city's culture. Uh, A stadium. Uh, There was a theater that had 24,000 seats in it. Look at that beautiful thing. 24,000 seats. To give you a little context, the Dean Dome has 21,750. All right, so imagine this with like a new banner furled down, championship 2017. Yeah, baby, all right. So that's kind of the, the environment into which he's writing, not just economic, not just religious, not just cultural, but also an education center, some world-class academies, and even a medical school. There's even a medical school in Ephesus. Is this place sounding familiar to you at all? There it is. Amen. Amen. So it's into this context into which he's writing. And he could be writing to us today. And through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he is writing to us today. Here's what happens, though, at the planting of this church. It happens in Acts chapter 19. 
verse 23. If you want, you can turn there with me. So in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, we get the story play out about how this church actually got started as Paul and some other believers begin to preach the gospel in this city. Lives start to get transformed. This place that was the center of idol worship. People are, they don't want to worship those idols anymore. And it begins to affect the whole economic system. These people whose livelihoods are to sell these little trinkets and idols of Artemis. And nobody wants to buy them anymore. And they're starting to feel the impact of that. People who had been involved in this, in this magic kind of cult, they all come together and they start burning their magic books. All right? Not like Harry Potter. All right? We're not telling you to like burn your Harry Potter books. Okay? But, but they're making this bold statement that things have shifted and things have changed for them. And I love the way it describes it. In, in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, verse 23, it says this. About that time... There arose a great disturbance about the way. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is how Christianity was known in its earliest days. The first Christians were referred to as the way. It's one of the first names attached to Christianity. I love that because it reminds us that Christianity is not just a collection of commonly held religious beliefs. It is a way of living. In the way of Jesus. We are following Jesus. It's a dynamic relationship with a real person. A living person named Jesus. Who lives within us and leads us. And that's what it means. It means to walk with him. and To live with him. To walk in the way of Jesus. I love this statement. It's one of the most stirring and convicting statements for me. About early Christianity. Because when Christianity rolled into town in Ephesus. There was a great disturbance that was caused because of it a great disturbance about the way here's what it says as it goes on a silversmith named demetrius who made silver shrines of artemis brought in no little business for the craftsmen he called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said listen you know we receive a good income from this business and you see and hear how this fellow paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in ephesus and throughout asia and he begins to critique paul for this he's like look this guy is losing us money he's changing things around here we've got to put a stop to this And what turns out is a riot ends up breaking out, okay? When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar, and they rushed as one into the theater to begin to chant and begin to fight against Paul on this. And, and, And so this massive demonstration is happening. I love it. Paul wants to go in the middle of it. He's like, let me just go in and talk to him. And people are like, no, dude, they're going to kill you. Don't do that. And he begs to go in there. I love that about Paul. He wants to be in the middle of it. It says this great confusion broke out. And for two hours, they were chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, that's how I imagine, right? (laughs) Two hours, this uproar. A great disturbance. Why? Because the gospel started to take root in that city. Because they saw in the lives of these people a great disturbance that had happened to them. 
And it began to change everything around them because their day in, their day out, every moment way of living challenged the status quo of that entire culture around them. And they said, look, we know you're investing all this hope and trust in Artemis. It's not going to work for you. We found a better way. Walk with us in this way of Jesus. It is life changing. It is transforming. And it shook the establishment of that city in such a way and to such a degree that something started to shift. There was a great disturbance. Can you imagine when this church gets together and they start talking about and remembering back on their eighth anniversary? They're like, hey, guys, remember how this all started with that riot where we almost got killed? Right. A great disturbance breaks out because of the gospel. Has your life been greatly disturbed by the gospel of Jesus? In a good way, exactly. Has your life been greatly disturbed by the gospel of Jesus? Or are you just rolling on like nothing even happened? Are the people around you seeing a great disturbance in your life? Are you becoming a mystery to them because of the mystery that has disrupted your life? In what ways? How has your life been changed? How has it been disrupted? Your time? Are you using your time differently? Your finances? Can you look at your own records and see a shift and a change of priorities based on the way that you're using your finances and investing your finances? Have your values changed? Do you, do, are you starting to care about things and people in a different way than you did before? Hope. How have your dreams changed? What are you looking forward to in life? What are you daydreaming about? What do you want to give your life to? Has it disturbed that? What about your relationships? Do you have relationships with people that you wouldn't otherwise even talk to if it hadn't been for the grace of Jesus seizing your life? And changing who you are, your views, the way you see the world, your political views and otherwise. Have they been affected in any way? Are you just still rolling on in the way that you had always been? Your heart posture, is it shifting? The depth of your soul, do you feel that capacity expanding? Your mind How is the gospel changing you? How is it disturbing you? Jesus is not merely a nice and polite person who's here to make you a more nice and polite person. That's not Christianity. Jesus is a revolutionary figure. He is holy love who came in flesh and blood and he will not be domesticated. He will continue to cause disturbances everywhere where he shows up. And the followers of Jesus will live In the same way today, if you go on a tour of the ruins of Ephesus and the temple of Artemis, then you're going to be told about that history. All right. You're going to be told about Artemis and all the great things of of Ephesian history. But you're also going to be told the story of Paul and what happened in that moment. It's now become a part of that city's history. And you don't get told the city of the story of the city of Ephesus without being told about Paul. And the church that got started there because of the gospel of Jesus being boldly proclaimed and causing a disruption. One of the city's claims to fame now for the rest of history is that it was associated with the church of Jesus planted by this man named Paul. 
You guys have heard of the Guardian newspaper, right? This great British newspaper, very famous out of the UK with worldwide reach. Well, they decided to do this series of stories on the best towns and small cities in the U.S. The first one they did, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. How about that? Isn't that awesome? And it's great as you read through the story that they're telling about our town. And I'm telling you, as I'm reading through this, and I'm like, oh, I love this town so much. This is so great to see. This is so encouraging. And then I get to this part where they start talking about the food scene in Chapel Hill. And Vimela's Curry Blossom Cafe is featured. Vimela is a member of this church. She's a part of this church family. And in her restaurant, she has incredible Indian food, the best Indian food in town. But even more than that, she's known for this slogan, Vimala cooks, everybody eats. And this financial model that just doesn't make sense to most business people in which she says, if you can't afford to pay the price on the menu, then you pay what you can. If you can't pay anything, you are our welcome guest at this table. And somehow this business continues to get this this attention and this acclaim, even though they're bucking what is normally the the business model, right? And they're totally blowing that out of the water. Vimala, I love this, that this paper out of the UK with this worldwide reach is telling the story of our town, but they felt like they couldn't tell the story of our town without talking about Vimala. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? I pray that that will be true of us as believers, as this church, that we will love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus in such a way that it will cause a disturbance, first of all, in our own lives. You're not disturbing anything until you're disturbed first. First, it will cause a disturbance in us, and then it will be this ripple effect of disturbance around us. And I pray that they can't tell the story of this town without talking about what Jesus did in this town without talking about the power of the gospel in this town, causing a great disturbance. A great disturbance arose about the way. These people who walked in the way of Jesus, who didn't just believe it, but they lived it, and it changed them. Their theology fed their biography, and it changed everything about them. That's our prayer for the next eight years of this church, for the next 80 years of this church. That's what we want to see happen. As we close out this morning, we're going to share in a meal around the Lord's table. We said from the beginning that the leader of this church, that the founder of this church is Jesus Christ. And we've committed that we will follow him In any way that he leads us. On his last night with his disciples. Jesus. Gathered them around the table. And as they were sharing this traditional. Passover meal. He took the bread that was on the table. And he broke it. And he said this bread represents my body. Which is broken. To make you whole. Take eat. And remember what I have done for you. And then he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time you taste it, remember what I have done for you. Jesus Christ has disturbed the world. And we are caught up in it. Has he disturbed your life? Has he disturbed you? 
If that's true for you, and if you're longing for that in your heart, then we invite you to come and to remember and to experience at the Lord's table. There are going to be two stations, one on this side, one on this side. You make your way down the aisles. When you come up, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you need a gluten-free option, that is on this side. A great disturbance arose about the way. Jesus, as we share in this meal and remember what you have done, we remember you. We remember the way that you have disturbed and disrupted our lives. And we're so grateful that we're not the same people anymore. It's in your name we pray. Amen.